The sermon this morning is entitled, Look Up and Lift Up Your Heads. From Luke 21, look up and lift up your heads. We're going to be looking at the Advent, the second coming of Christ, uh, by the words of Christ found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. And as we do that this morning, we have to reflect that we are in an age of extreme ignorance about the Word of God, about the things of God, and certainly regarding the return of Christ is one of the biggest areas that we hear things all the time that the Bible just simply doesn't say. But what the Bible does say is that Christ is coming back. He's coming back once, not twice or three times. He's coming back once, and when he comes, it will be unimaginable splendor and terror at the same time. Unimaginable splendor and terror at the same time. It is a certainty, just as certain as the graduation or birthday that we made reference to earlier. It is already on God's calendar. He knows exactly when it's going to happen. The days are simply ticking down in that direction. And so as we come here this morning, the second Advent of, uh, second Sunday of Advent, we want to reflect as we move through this season about the return of Christ. And placing everything as we hopefully do day after day, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, against the backdrop of both the eternity that comes with Christ and the coming of Christ. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? In Luke 21, beginning in the 20th verse, Luke 21, beginning in verse 20, we read this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Will you pray with me, please? God, we ask that you would give us a right and helpful sense of the times in which we're in and of the perspective and posture that we are to take. Grant, God, that in these troubling times, those who are in Christ Jesus will be serene and confident and hopeful and beacons of light and truth to those around. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a great need to hear the words here of what is taking place this day. And I want to remind you that as we begin reading this, I encourage you to go back and always read a, any passage of Scripture that you hear briefly, put it in context. And the context of this is... Christ is reflecting on some things that are, some dreadful things that are going to happen toward the end. But I want to remind you of something critical here as we begin looking at this passage. Most of you know it already, but it's good to bring it to the surface once again. And that is that when we look at, when Christ is speaking of the return of Christ, when Christ is speaking of these things, there's always the reality of now and not yet. There's always the reality of now and not yet. Christ is ever mindful that the temple is about to be destroyed. It is destroyed just 40 years after his death. We have no comprehension of what that's like today. We just 
We look at pictures of the Temple Mount on TV, and, and we have no clue of what it was like. The Temple Mount was five football fields large in Jesus' day. Five football fields side by side, solid finished stone, marble everywhere, arcade, uh, colonnade all the way around the building, huge stables on one end, huge offices on the other end for the Sanhedrin, a stoa, a guardhouse on one other end of it. It was a phenomenal building, and it was the center of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was a metropolitan center of the world. And Christ said it's going to be destroyed. And he predicted that. He understood it was going to happen. He understood that when he came and finished his completed work of atoning, that there would be no need for this temple anymore, and that God would appropriately remove it from the earth, and he did. And so when he speaks about end times, and when he speaks about the great changes that are coming, He is speaking of both now, meaning in his day, in his generation. He says some of you will still be alive when these things take place. He's referring to the destruction of the temple. Some of you hearing me, he says, will be alive when you see this transformation that the temple is destroyed and now the kingdom of God goes out in that vision of Daniel as the stone that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and fills the whole world. Some of the words of Christ are rightly understood by now. He's talking about this generation in the next 30, 40 years. And some of the words of Christ in this passage and in other passages when he speaks of his return are about the final return. The final return of Christ is in the now and the not yet of this passage. And we want to have some appreciation of that as we look into this passage this morning. You recall that Jerusalem was destroyed. The entire city was destroyed. In 70 AD, they did not want to destroy the city. It was part of the Roman Empire. They came and it was a great city. They had no desire to destroy it. They earnestly desired that the rebels within the walls would just simply make peace. There were situations in the history of both Israel and in other cities where some people were rabble-rousers and the people inside the city recognized if we let these rabble-rousers continue, our enemies are going to destroy us. And so the people inside the city on some occasions, would kill the rabble-rousers and throw their heads over the wall and say, we want peace with you. No one did that with the Romans. None of the Jewish leaders did that. They fought against them and fought against them and fought against them. And finally, Titus, the general, came in and built a siege wall. Rome rarely built siege walls. They built a siege wall of tons and tons of unimaginable amount of sand up to the side of the wall and then walked right over the wall and killed everybody inside, men, women, and children, and then pulled every stone of the city down. Every vertical stone was pulled down. And all of the people, that the ones that escaped, were brought into, the tribe to escape, were brought into slavery. It was a phenomenal time of great judgment, of great difficulty, of great chaos, of great woe. And Jesus is predicting that in part here in this passage here as he talks about some of the difficulties that are yet to come under God's plan. But he says in here that there are some things yet to come. He says specifically both about the things that are coming and the things that are yet to come that their men's hearts will fail them, it said in the passage here, that men themselves will faint from fear. And surely they would have done that when they began to see that temple being destroyed. When they began to see that siege mound coming up the side of the wall. And once the siege mound starts, there really was very little that they could do. And the Romans had so many soldiers, they were willing to sacrifice some because their honor and pride was at stake. And they weren't about to have Jerusalem be uh, thumbing their nose in front of them. And so they sacrificed a lot of men in order to accomplish this. As they did, there was great fear. And surely men were fearing inside and fainting from fear. And you think about the reality of today. They were able to look over the wall and actually see, listen, they were actually to see their destruction coming slowly. It took them quite a while in engineering to make a wall that big, to make a ramp that big, to get up to the top of the wall. It took them weeks to do that. And so they're looking over the wall and they're seeing this construction It's like looking out your window and seeing your very noose, a gallows, being prepared for you. You have time to think about it. And today is not a lot different if you stop and think about it. Today the world is in chaos and we can see the advancing of the kingdom of darkness around us. 
we can see the advancing of the kingdom of darkness around us. The church simply and truly is nowhere near as influential as it once was in the world. It is nowhere near as influential as it once was in the world. It is nowhere near as large. It is nowhere near as accurate. It is nowhere near as powerful and meaningful. There is darkness all around, outside and inside the church. There is chaos in the Middle East as there are concerns over Iran having a nuclear weapon. And something that many Americans don't understand, I mentioned to you before that I read the Jerusalem Post every morning, and the Jerusalem Post has been having a series of articles on the reality that Ahmadinejad in Iran has announced not only that he's in favor of the annihilation of Israel, he understands that his duty, he says, is to restore the Persian Caliphate. Now, that means nothing to Americans. The Persian Caliphate is that Moorish expansion in which the Muslims took over the entire Middle East, all of North Africa, and most of Western or Eastern Europe, all the way up into Spain. And it was turned back right in the days of uh, the, the late 1400s, or stopped in Europe. The Muslims were expanding. And I remind you that Islam has always, the primary mode of evangelism for Islam has always been the sword. The primary mode of evangelism for Islam has always been the sword. And Jerusalem is mindful today. They are mindful of the intent of Muslims to continue and to expand into a kingdom uh, in that region. China, there's great chaos and confusion in regard to uh, peace and some of the concerns there, both economic and otherwise. In North Korea, in the same manner, there's an economic crisis in Europe. And certainly, unless you've been asleep for some time, you're aware that there's an economic crisis in the United States, and it could be worse. There are storms and winds and waves, even with the storm recently on the East Coast. There are a great deal of concerns all around us today, as there would have been back then. And it would be easy today to be overwhelmed and to have our hearts faint in fear. Hear me on this. When Christians encounter the difficulties that I've just named, and there are many in our world today, Christians should be responding in a dramatically different way than non-Christians. Christians in conversation should be dramatically different than our friends who do not know Christ. Christians in the invisible church, those who are born again, should be dramatically different from those in the visible church, those who merely name the name of Christ, but are not born again, do not have the Holy Spirit residing in them, are not longing for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Christians should be observably different in how we look to the return of Christ and how we pilot through challenging circumstances, including world chaos. So what is it that Christ says? We just read this passage from verse 20 down to uh, 28, I think we read. Um, What is it? Well, in verse 28, he says, But when these things began to take place, he means those things that are going to take place in, in, in their lifetime, the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Christ, When these things began to take place, the signs of of the end time, if you will, when these things began to take place, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. What is that? It's this. It's it's like a fighter in a fight who is clearly, listen, is clearly winning the bout. And he looks over at the clock and he sees there's only 30 seconds left. There's only 30 seconds left. And he knows all he's got to do is stay on his feet. All he's got to do is stay on his feet. Jesus is saying when this difficulty comes, instead of being overwhelmed by it, to look back and reflect upon the completed work of Christ, to look at the faithfulness of God, to look at the big picture of God's plan of redemption from beginning to end, he's always planned the destruction of the world. God has always planned the destruction of the world. And the world, listen, should not mean more to you than it does to God. And that includes anything you have in the world, any person, any possession, any interest. Nothing in this world should mean more to you than it does to God. And God's plan is the destruction of the world as the return of Christ comes and and brings in the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. 
What is it then that we're to do in these times of great difficulty? What is the advice of the direction, if you will, of the Lord Christ? It's in verse 28. But when these things began to take place, look up and lift up your heads. Why? Because your redemption is drawing nigh. What does he tell us to do? He tells us to look up and lift up our heads. When are we to do it? When you see these things taking place. And why? Because good things are happening. They are the birth pangs of the return of Christ. They are the birth pangs of the redemption of our good God. And we must have that perspective. We must have a sense of do what? Look up. Lift up your heads, it says. Hope in God. And that means outward and inward. That is that you have a knowledge of a hope in God. A critical part is a knowledge of God that we ourselves would know who God is. And one of the things I heard somebody say this week on the radio um, that what an incredible age of darkness we live in the world. They were answering questions that people were writing in. And the person answering these questions was a pastor. The person answering the questions of the radio acknowledged that the questions that came in more recently were just reflecting that people just don't know the basics of the Bible. And therefore, they don't know the basic nature of who God is. The basic nature of who God is. When we are studying through Sunday night, one of the things we're doing is we're getting to know God. We're doing that series on Sunday night of the essential truths of the Christian faith. If you were to ask anybody out there in the world, go outside and ask somebody how many essential truths of the Christian faith, they wouldn't come up with 102. I think there's 102 chapters in that book. Essential truths. R.C. Sproul was mindful that he had that many chapters and still chose to name it essential truths. He means everything in here you need to know. You need to know the character of God. You need to know his plan of redemption. You need to know the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to know his holy wrath. You need to know his sovereignty, his will, the manner of who God is. And we are ignorant today of it. J.I. Packer wrote a book years ago called Knowing God. Quite frankly, it's pretty similar to essential truths of the Christian faith. It's the idea of actually knowing who God is. Let me give you a verse from Elihu who knew God. You remember in the book of Job, I'm reading through Job in my personal devotions right now, and you recall that Job has this great difficulty that comes upon him, an unimaginable difficulty. Ten children die. All of his camels and sheep are all stolen. Um, Great difficulty. And then finally, personal illness comes upon him of a grave nature. He has three friends that come and try to advise him. They are wrong, wrong, and wronger. But then Elihu comes, a young man who doesn't speak because he's in the presence of older men. What a remarkable reality of understanding the fifth commandment. He does not speak because he's in the presence of older men. But finally, after being so frustrated with the older men that they are not speaking what's right about God, he steps forward and he begins to speak that which is right about the character of who God is. He's a transition from these three advisors who do not know God to God himself coming to Job in chapter 38 and actually revealing himself in a more direct way to Job. Listen to what Elihu says. Just one verse. Elihu knows God. And he's standing in front of a man. Listen, he's not standing in front of a man in church with everything going well for him. He's standing in front of a man who has lost 10 children in a single day. That's not a story. They're real people. These are real sons and real daughters that he held and kissed and loved and nurtured and and he knew them and he loved them so much he sacrificed for them on a regular basis saying perhaps they have enjoyed themselves so much they might have said or done something to sin against God and, and he wanted to sacrifice on their behalf. He lost 10 children in a day. The Bible says... As I was reading this week, the Bible says the man has 3,000 camels. Who has 3,000 camels? A really rich man has 3,000 camels. A really rich man with a lot of people working for him has 3,000 camels. He's an incredibly wealthy man. Elihu is standing in front of this incredibly wealthy man that now has lost everything, including his own health. And this is what Elihu says to him. He doesn't offer him platitudes and foolishness. Here's what he says. One verse, chapter 37, verse 22. God is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant in justice. 
He does not oppress. What a remarkable statement in difficult circumstances. He doesn't say, Job, this is because you have sinned and you have brought this on yourself. What he says is, what I know, I don't know about you, Job. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your life. I haven't been around here that much. What he knows is, God is good. God is powerful. God is just. In the last phrase, he does not oppress. He never messes with anybody. He's never unfair. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, God is too wise to make a mistake and far too good to be unkind. That's what Elihu is saying. He does not oppress. Are there challenging circumstances in your life? God does not oppress. Are there things you're looking for and you don't have them? God does not oppress. Are there things you've got you wish you didn't have? God does not oppress. That's what Elihu knows because Elihu knows God. And when the whole world is falling apart around you and perhaps even under your own feet, you'll need to know God does not oppress for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not oppress. What a remarkable reality of God. We need to know God. Brothers and sisters, we need to study God. And quite frankly, as I've mentioned to you before, one of the best places to get to know the very nature and character of God is through the Psalms. His nature and attributes are referred to over and over and over again. They're set forth very beautifully in the rest of the Word of God, but they are collected and brought out and focused upon in the book of Psalms. I urge you to be praying through the Psalms. And one of them is Psalm 136, that every other line, every other line is, for his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. Whatever is happening to the people of God, Jesus is saying this in Luke 21. He's saying there are going to be some traumatic things that come upon you, both now and the next 40 years, for those of you who are here, and in the future, for those who read and hear about this, there are going to be some dramatic things that come upon you. And you must know who I am, and you must remember the steadfast love of God endures forever. He that watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Brothers and sisters, I want, to, I want you to think about this. Don't, this isn't an opportunity for you to say, well, yes, God, but you know, Bob said some nice things about God today, and well, it's hard to not say nice things about God, isn't it? The question is this, how are you handling the difficult circumstances of your life? The difficult circumstances of the world, economic, physical circumstances, whatever else it is that's going on in your particular life. What are the needs that get you, that overwhelm you, that drive you into the dust? And how are you applying this glorious knowledge and the remembrance of these things? Turn to Psalm 42, if you will. Psalm 42 is that beautiful declaration by the psalmist in which he preaches to himself. Oh, I hope you know that before you even get to Psalm 42. I don't know what I would do, brothers and sisters, if I didn't know about Psalm 42 and Psalm 86. If you don't know these, brothers and sisters, mark them down. Put them somewhere. Well, the bottom line is you just need to know them. You need to know Psalm 42. As you may know, 43 is part of 42. It's separated, apparently, later. 42 and 43 are virtually the same thing in terms of their theme. They have the same chorus in them. And 86 is another one of the very same theme. When we are thinking about these things, we have to consider the various concerns that are going on in our life. And Psalm 42 is somebody going through chaos, somebody going through difficult times, whether it's economic or physical or otherwise. There are great difficulties, and they are at their wits' end. Psalm 107. Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants, and we walked through that on Sunday night, and we learned that the word is not pant. It isn't as the deer pants. It's as the deer brays. As the deer brays like an animal caught in a trap. As the deer brays for the water brooks, so my soul brays for you, O oh God. It's just, it's just this sense of, I, uh, I have no hope in myself. There's nothing I can do. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, giving a multitude, with a multitude of keeping the festival. And then he turns 
and he preaches to himself, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you downcast within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his countenance. Skip down to verse 11, after he talks about some more difficulties in his life, then he preaches to himself again. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Psalm 43, verse 5, the end of that same thing. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance. My countenance, you remember, is face. The help of my face. The one who turns my face from a scowl to joy and thanksgiving and worship and praise. He's preaching to himself. He remembers it. And that's what we are to do. We are to do just that. We are to hope in God. He says, look up, lift up your heads. That's the words of Christ. Look up, lift up your heads. There are going to be many who will be terrorized. There are going to be many who don't know what to do. There are going to be many who genuinely understand that their world is coming to an end. But listen to this. Christians want their world to come to an end. And there may be people sitting here this morning who don't understand that. There may be people sitting here this morning who think, no, 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 what I want is my life to get better and better every day. Christians want their world to come to an end for two reasons. One is the will of the Almighty. He has ordained from the beginning that this was a temporal thing that he set up, and it's coming to an end. Christians want what God wants. And Christians understand that until this world comes to an end, they will wrestle with sin, and they want to be delivered from sin. They want to be delivered from sin. They want to walk in newness of life. They want to worship with the holy angels from their heart. They want to be in that joyful fellowship of the Almighty, of the Trinity, with the other believers for all eternity. Christians want this world to come to an end. Well, what are we to do? We are to look up and lift up our heads. When are we to do it? Verse 28, back in chapter 21 of Luke. When are we to do it? But when these things begin to take place, in the midst of the difficulty, when you begin to see the things of this world falling apart, hear this, when you begin to see the church crumbling and disappearing and falling back, as we see it all around us today, look up. Lift up your heads. When you begin to see every manner of false gospel preached as if it were the gospel, when you begin to see every manner of foolishness and all kinds of modern uh, atheism and new age uh, philosophies and, and other kinds of religion, look up, look up, lift up your head. When you begin to see economic crisis or a physical calamity such as earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes, look up in the midst of it. Verse 28, but when these things begin to take place, be so knowledgeable about the things of God, be so confident in the sovereignty of God, in the wisdom of God, in the goodness of God, in the particularity of God, that he knows where you are and he knows what's going on in your life. Be so confident in that. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he said, fear is contagious. Fear is contagious. Moses and the people had their backs against the Red Sea and they thought it was the end. But God had them to look up and their redemption was nigh as the Red Sea itself opened up and they crossed over. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were threatened and then actually put in the fiery furnace and it looked like the end. And the Son of God is walking in the furnace with them, and they are unharmed. Paul and Silas are beaten up and thrown in prison, and they begin singing hymns to the Almighty as they know and remember who He is. They understand that if we got beaten up today, it's because God wanted us to be beat up today. If we're in prison right now, it's because God wants us in prison. We don't know all that's going on here. We don't know if it's because maybe we were preaching the gospel wrong. I don't know about that. I don't think that's what it was. But we know that if we're here, we know that if we're in prison, it's because God wanted us to prison. And we're going to worship him here in prison. 
Christ understood that in the Garden of Gethsemane, that it was for this very purpose that I came to drink the cup. And so he drinks the cup. Fear is contagious. What about you today in regard to fears of the world and things that are going on in your life? Any particular concern, financial, physical, spiritual, otherwise? Look on the back of your bulletin is another quote from Charles Spurgeon under the red letters. The red letters, I want to first start with her two red letters there, the two lines. Those red letters are a hymn that's not in the Trinity hymnal. It's one of those many, 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 many glorious hymns that didn't make it into the Trinity hymnal, which I love the Trinity hymnal. They're just beautiful hymns out there. I urge you to sing hymns in your personal devotions. And today we have the advantage of the internet. You can go to the internet and pull up any hymn, anytime. And not only can you get the words to it, you can get the tune. This is one of Isaac Watts' wonderful, wonderful hymns. We sing hymns in the church today largely because of Isaac Watts. In his day, it was not done. They sang the Psalms and the Psalms only. But in his day, he began introducing the singing of hymns more and more and more into the church with a few others, but had a huge influence uh, at that time. This is the first stanza of a hymn with nine stanzas to it. I urge you to Google it and read it and pray through it. But listen to what he says. He says, Why does your face, you humble souls, those mournful colors wear? What doubts are these that waste your faith and nourish your despair? Doesn't that make you want to read the rest of the hymn? Google it this afternoon. What doubts are these that waste your faith and nourish your despair? Instead of a confidence in God, instead of knowing God and remembering who he is, and even recognizing that it is through difficulty that God brings great things, he does have that methodology. Every vine that bears fruit, I, every vine that bears good fruit, I prune that it might bear more fruit. Well, before we read about the fear, turn to the front of your bulletin. On the front of your bulletin there is a quote from Charles Spurgeon in which he is clarifying the very value, the very practice, the very nature of who God is about bringing difficult circumstances, both in regard to the big plan of redemption and in regard to your own particular life. I wish we could get into the habit of believing that every time of need, every time of pain, every time of depression, what a remarkable comment from Charles Spurgeon. Did Charles Spurgeon know anything about depression? He said he did. He said he did. Every time of depression is but the commencement of a season of blessing. Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That's a reference to Peter. Remember the Lord's objective in this experience is that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as you look at the black buds on the tree of your life, I put that in bold that you might think about that. As you look at, do you have black buds on the tree of your life? Yeah, you do. As you look at the black buds on the tree of your life, say to yourself, I wonder what bright flower is coming out there. Look at the dark bulbs without any beauty at all in them, which we put into the ground. Yet the flowers which come out of them are charming and fragrant. So when God plants some black bulbs in the garden of your soul, do not cry out because of their ugliness, but look for the flowers that shall in due time appear and expect something beautiful from God's sowing. What is the beautiful thing that is coming out of Luke 21 when he says, look up, lift up your heads. It's me coming back, Christ says. I'm coming back. This world is coming to an end. This world that all Christians want to come to an end is coming to an end. I'm coming back. I'm gathering my people into eternal bliss, into my presence for all glory to the Father forever. I'm coming back. You're going to be forever separated from your sin. I'm coming back. Look for the joy that's in that black bud. And Christ says, in the midst of difficulties to do that, while we were talking about fear on the back of your bulletin, uh, Charles Spurgeon goes on and talks about fear as well. Same same um, preacher, Charles Spurgeon here. What does he say about fear? He says on the back, under those red lines, he says, what does this precept mean? First, it implies an absence of fear. Perfect love cast out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. What cause has a Christian for fear? 
what is there that can harm the man whom God loves? Oh, I hope you hear that. Charles Spurgeon talking about this. Did Charles Spurgeon know anything about physical disease? He had gout. He had gout most of his adult life. He died when he was like 56 years old. I'm 57. He had gout the last 10 years of his life. He said it was excruciating pain in his feet. Excruciating pain. He understood that if he had gout, it was from God. And that God was using that somehow to his glory. What causes a Christian for fear? What is there that can harm the man whom God loves? Will he trample on his child or allow anyone else to hurt him? No, for all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. The sun and moon and stars, the earth and the seas, wars and pestilences, all work together for good to God's dear children. Let us therefore cast out all fear. Charles Spurgeon, hear this, knew God and he remembered God in the pain of his gout. Do you know God this morning? And do you remember him in the pain of your afflictions? Jonathan Edwards, at 19 years old, wrote in the back of his Bible that every time he felt pain, every time he felt physical pain, he would use it as a retrieval cue to remember the pain of Christ on the cross, to remember the pain of the martyrs who died to preserve the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth, and to remember the pain of those who are in hell. Every time he felt physical pain, he would use it to worship God. Well, what are we to do? We're to look up and lift up our heads. When are we to do it? We are to do it in the midst of the chaos. We are to do it as soon as we begin to recognize that chaos is breaking out around us. And why is it that we're to do it? Because our redemption is drawing nigh. Our temporal and individual, that's what Paul, that's what uh, Charles Spurgeon is referring to in the front of your bulletin there, that quote that we just read. He's talking about things that happen in your life. He says sometimes difficulties happen in your life and they're preceding the flowering that is coming out of some good blessing that God's bringing your way. But in the great plan of redemption, there is the reality that uh, God's return of Christ is on its way when we look around the world today. I don't know that Christ is coming back. Uh, I don't know when he's coming back. I know he's coming back. I don't know when he's coming back. There's been news again this week. You remember that we're coming up on um, the Mayan calendar running out here uh, pretty soon. I'm not exactly sure when. I'm not really prepared for it. Um, but um, uh, actually, I am prepared for it. Um, but the Mayan calendar is supposed to run out. There's been news of that again. It's this month sometime. I don't know if it's the 12th or when it is, but it's, it's this month. Um, the big picture What is the big picture? Well, the big picture is that Christ is returning and the difficulties in this world are promised by God. He tells us right here in Luke 21 that when he returns, it will be a time of calamity. It will be a time in which things seem to not seem, they will be out of control. They will be out of control. And how are Christians to conduct themselves? They're to look up and lift up their heads. They're to be pointing others to the Savior by both their lives and their lips. They're to be telling of the goodness of God, of the wisdom of God. And when you see this calamity, you see all this, one of the great things that Christians can do is you can go right to the Bible and say, see, God told us this was going to happen. I've done that before with many people, and it's very wise, very good thing to do. Take people to the Scriptures and show them where God promised things centuries in advance, and then they came to pass. God promised that when the return of Christ would take place, the world would be in chaos. Not that things would be humming along and everything would be great. The dollar would be solid. It would have a balanced budget. The Democrats and Republicans would like each other. It would be a time of chaos, he says. A time of great difficulty. And we're to lift up our heads. Is this the first time that we've ever heard, lift up your heads? Turn to Psalm 24. You remember that in the Psalms, we saw some themes as we studied through the Psalms, and sometimes they're gathered together on purpose. 22, 23, and 24 are all very specifically about Christ. 22, 23, and 24 
are all very specifically about Christ. 22 is the one of the words of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 23 is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Christ is the good shepherd of John chapter 10. And then 24, Christ is the soon coming king. Christ is the soon coming king. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It describes that Christ has made all things. It all belongs to God. And then it refers to the return right there in verse uh, 7. We're in Psalm 24. Verse 7 at the end of this beautiful psalm is a chorus that's repeated twice. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, even the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It's a reference to the return of Christ. And Christ here says, lift up your heads. That's what we're to do. We're to do it when chaos breaks out. We're to be rejoicing. You remember in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, a verse that many of us remember at Christmas time in particular, when angel Gabriel, who stands in the very presence of God, he says to Zacharias, Gabriel appears to Mary and he says this, Hail, blessed one, the Lord is with you that are highly favored. You that are highly favored, he says. He appears to a particular person, an angel, and says, Rejoice! Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Was Mary blessed among women? Unspeakably, we just sang of it this morning that she has this tender kiss for the God of the universe in her arms. Was she a blessed woman? She was. Did she have difficulties and heartaches ahead of her? She did. Are those in Christ able to take that verse and apply it to them? Rejoice! Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among all people. Every Christian can receive that because it's true as we become more and more aware of the rarity and the miracle of salvation. The rarity and the miracle of salvation. I remind you again this morning, I grew up right here in Wilmington, North Carolina. And when I grew up, your only options were to be a Christian or a communist. Everybody was a Christian. Or at least we thought. We were badly mistaken. We were badly mistaken. Not everybody who simply acknowledges Jesus. Not everybody who doesn't have a fight with Jesus. You recall that it's Ralph Waldo Emerson on his dying bed. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who all his life did not live and walk as a Christian, did not attend worship, did not believe in the Trinity, and did not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and openly communicated that. On his deathbed, his mother says to him, Have you made your peace with God? And he says, Mom, I didn't know we were fighting. That's really the age in which I grew up, right here in Wilmington. Everybody just thought they were okay with Jesus. They were okay with Jesus because they'd been walked through some false understanding of the gospel. They'd either been told as a child to bow their heads and pray that the Lord Christ would come into their heart somehow, or they'd gone through something crazy called confirmation. As if somehow on a given date, you can just simply agree and sign on the dotted line and be born again. But the Bible says that you must be born again. That as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, confirmation, but of God. Salvation, hear this, has always been a miracle. But growing up in the Bible Belt, I, along with all of my friends and relatives, grossly misunderstood that. I grossly misunderstood that. Can I look up and lift up my head this day at the return of Christ? I can because it is true by the gospel, by the electing love of God, by the covenant love of God. It is true for me that I can say, that Gabriel is speaking to me. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among people. 
Now, please hear that um, rejoicing and looking up doesn't mean that we take God for granted. We're not doing that at all. We're not taking it for granted. We're trusting in his promises. We're actually believing the promises. Well, what barriers or limitations would there be for us in regard to this? Well, just very simply, I'll just give you a couple briefly. What barriers or encouragements would there be regarding looking up? That's what Christ tells us to do in the midst of all this. He says, look up, lift up your heads. Well, the first one and foremost I just mentioned, and that is salvation. You must be born again. There would be nothing to look up. There would be no reason to rejoice. There would be nothing. Your redemption is not drawing nigh if you're outside of Christ. But condemnation is drawing nigh. Judgment and eternal damnation is drawing nigh. The holy wrath of God visited upon his foes for eternity is drawing nigh. That's what's happening. This teaching of Christ, look up, lift up your heads, is for those who are in Christ. As you hear this this morning, there may be no appeal to you. May not, may not be of any interest to you. It would indicate where you are with Christ, where you are with God. God would have us to delight when we hear this and to be burdened for those who are not prepared for this. Salvation is the first and foremost barrier to being able to take Jesus at his words. Look up and lift up your head. Another key thing would be having an eternal perspective. We must conduct ourselves in this life with an eternal perspective. It has always been God's plan for the destruction of the world, and therefore we must look forward to it in that sense, holding all things in the palm of our hand. God, you give, you take away, you do whatever is needful and appropriate and timeful, and on your good timing, you do whatever is in your heart to do. A third thing would be Christian fellowship. Hear this. He who walks with wise men will be wise. Not everybody you know that names the name of Jesus is looking forward to the return of Jesus. You want to be with people who are ready to let go of this world. You want to be with people who have let go of this world. They're in this world. They're about their father's business, but they are not attached to this world. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools suffers much harm. We become like the people we're around. Are the people around you lifting their heads and looking up. What a remarkable thing. What are your friends like? Are your friends fearful and skeptical, doleful, angry, pessimistic? Maybe even your internet friends? Then cut them off if you need to. Do whatever you need to do. Fear is contagious. Are your friends hopeful and joyful, serene and optimistic? Are they filled with faith and love for Christ? a longing for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Let me suggest one more brief thing, and that is this that uh, may affect you in regard to your ability to look up and lift. Listen very carefully to this. That might affect you in your ability now and perhaps in the year 2013 and beyond. Listen carefully, everybody in this room. One of the factors that affects us in our ability to love God and walk with Him in joy is health. God himself, we, so we see it in Job. I'm reading through that right now. I just mentioned to you. God himself brings ill health on us from time to time. God himself does that. He says, I do that when he talks to Moses in the book of Exodus. He says, who is it that makes people deaf? And who is it that makes people blind? But me, he says. God brings ill health on people. And when he does, we bow low and worship and plead with him to be glorified in the midst of that. We, however, are to have nothing to do with bringing ill health on ourselves. And we live in an age of self-centeredness and pleasure and comfort in which people are doing all kinds of unhealthy things to themselves on a regular basis. And it affects us. It drives us down. It wears us out. And that general wearing out affects our relationship with God. We should, as much as we are capable of doing by God's help, pursue diligently good health. We need to be good stewards of this body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to be lifelong lovers of learning. We need to be praying. We need to be crying out to God for us in the Word of God and in fellowship, to learn new things about God, to learn more and more about God. And finally this, in order to be able to look up and understand this, we need to recognize that God is doing something and he has invited us 
to come with him. He has commanded us to come with him. Bilbo Baggins is about to go on the a trip that's going to change his life. And as he's leaving the Shire, his friends cry out to him, where are you going? And he doesn't know. And what he says to them is, I'm going on an adventure. I'm going on an adventure. Christians understand that. That's Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going on an adventure. I'm going where God leads me. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to pursue Him. Wherever that takes me, that's where I'm going. And I'm going to do so with bright eyes. I'm going to do so looking forward to learning new things and experiencing new things. I'm going to do so looking forward, recognizing that God is with me. And God does not oppress. When challenging circumstances come on the Christian's pilgrim's path, I'm going to hope in God. I'm going to preach to myself. I'm going to look up, lift up my head, and long for the return of Christ. Will you pray with me, please? God, we acknowledge before you this morning that on the Lord's Day, seated in your house, we can have some understanding of these truths. We also acknowledge because of our frailty, because of our sin, and because of the world, and because of the devil, that these things are hard to remember on Monday. God, we ask that you would bless us to be found diligent students of you in your word and creation, to get to know you better, that we might stand upon the precious promises of your word and join you with joy as you bring about the consummation of all things. Our prayer, God, is that thy will be done. Our prayer is, come, Lord Jesus. Grant that we would agree with Martin Luther in saying, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Lord, we want to let goods and kindred go. God, I pray for every person here this morning that you would bless us to linger on this beautiful reality of the return of Christ this day, this afternoon, this week, this season of Advent. And that especially in difficult circumstances, like the psalmist, we would preach to ourselves And hear once again the words of Christ, look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. We pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.